On that note, I'm going to kind of pivot here to uh, looking at the book of 2 Timothy as we continue through this sermon series. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9 here this morning. And as we jump into the text, uh, I was reflecting on an email I got in the middle of the summer where it was a friend of mine who works with a lot of churches and a lot of ministry leaders. And, and the title just said, It's Hard Being a Pastor. And then it was a link to a YouTube video, and I clicked on it and opened it. And it was uh, of David Platt's July 4th sermon. David Platt is a pretty well-known preacher. Um, he, uh, he's the head pastor of McLean Bible Church. He's an author uh, as well. And, and I opened it, and I'm like, what happened? And essentially he said, yeah, uh, the other night we had a vote uh, for th- to, to uh, nominate and install three new elders. And we walked through all the process, and everything was looking great. And then they all just failed to, to pass uh, this process, which totally shocked them. And so uh, as they did a little more digging, what they found out was there were people in the lobby while people were walking in saying things like, hey, if you vote these guys in, uh, they're going to sell our building to a mosque. Or uh, they were saying, hey, if you vote these guys in, it's going to align with this um, non-Christian agenda and, and all sorts of stuff. And I, I won't say any more about what was going on. And I know there is things happening in that church that I don't fully understand. Uh, but, but the net result of it is another town meeting or congregational meeting that ha- happened afterwards, which uh, authorities had to get involved in removing people. And now there's a bunch of lawsuits at this church. And, and, and frankly, friends, uh, I, it, that's actually pretty common right now. Uh, in the church in America. In fact, the reason I remembered that is because another friend here sent me an article that was in the Atlantic here just a couple of weeks ago, written by a man named uh, Peter Wenner. Uh, Peter Wenner was a speechwriter for three presidents. Uh, he attends a PCA church there in the Northern Virginia area. And here's the title, ready? This will get your attention. The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. <laughs> All right, well, it had my interest. So I started reading, and, and here's just one interesting paragraph. It actually led with that story of what was going on at Platt's church. And then he goes on and he says, The root of discord in the church at large right now is in fact the, is the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace but of grievances, places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. Now, friends, I will just tell you, if you go and grab any pastor today, they will be able to reiterate that. Because right now, all over the church, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing infighting and, and things like that. And i got to be honest, it's kind of a depressing season to be a pastor. And I read this article and I was like, like oh, great, I'm ready to preach on Sunday, right? But then I began to ask this question, because what happens when we live in a time like this, maybe a once-in-a-generation moment like we're living, and, and things look kind of bleak, we go, oh no, the church has never faced this. The gospel has never run up against this. What hope do we have? That's where my heart goes, at least. What was really cool about my study this week is, is it just kind of, made, it, it kind of made me aware of the fact that this is not the first time that the church has actually fought with each other. This is not the first time that the church has been a dumpster fire in a given nation or city or area. In fact, let me read to you our text from today, and it's not too hopeful on the face of it, 
But in a way, it became more helpful to me as I studied. So 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Let's see what Paul says to Timothy. Now remember, Timothy is planting churches in places where churches have never been planted. And Paul is just kind of giving him a nudge or advice or encouraging him to keep up the work. And here's why. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Let me pray for us as we get going. Well, Father, I I will just confess that I'm tired. (laughs) And these are frustrating articles to read. And these are frustrating times to live in. And Lord, I know many of my friends out here, they're not paid pastors, but they are um, called by you to do ministry in the church. And it's been said to me time and time again, Anthony, this is how it feels in my home group, in my family, wherever that may be. And so Jesus... We just desperately need you today. We need to know you know what's going on. (laughs) The good news is is I think this is proof that you do. And Father, we need to also be reminded uh, that you, even in your knowing, are not done with us, are not done with the church. Lord, you're not done with your work of the gospel in hearts, in lives, in families, in neighborhoods, in cities, in nations, and in the world. And so Holy Spirit, would you work through your word And speak through my words this morning by your grace. And Father, regardless, help your Holy Spirit apply your word to our hearts. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, here's the reality that I think Paul is telling Timothy, and I think he would articulate to us as well, is that life in the church is actually hard because of the misguided love of others. Now, here's what's interesting. I've never caught this before in my reading of this book, but if you go back to two weeks ago, the week before the persecuted church, um, there, there was this picture of Paul telling Timothy, as you begin to do the work of ministry, you need to start with one problem area, and it's you. <laughs> it's your own heart. As you begin to do the work of ministry, you're going to face the sin that comes out of you. You're going to need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, flee uh, your youthful passions, as he says. And so as I was driving back from Men's Retreat, it just struck me as I was thinking through that week, this week, and next week, there's just a series of concentric circles that Paul begins to walk Timothy through. He starts off with the sinner and saying, as you do ministry, and I would say this, church, as you do ministry, you're going to have to deal with your own heart. And then that next circle is really what we're talking about today. You're actually going to have to deal with hardship within the context of the church, those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And then next week, you're going to see that outside circle of saying ministry is hard as well because of what you're going to face from outside of the church. It was just so cool to me that that Paul is just walking Timothy through and I think walking us through the challenges that we're going to face, that God is not shocked. It's actually not proof that the gospel is false or not believable. It's God saying, absolutely, these are challenges. And that's why I sent Jesus. And that's why I've, I've given the church my Holy Spirit to continue on this mission that I will one day bring to its full completion. Praise the Lord. 
Now, some of you might be looking at this and saying, well, Anthony, you were saying that what Paul is writing here is talking about his efforts in this church planning, but, but you're wrong. The time word here says in the last days, and we're not quite in the last days, and Timothy surely wasn't in the last days. And, and honestly, I wrestled with this too. You know, I grew up in a context that's like, you know, we were often like peering out at what's going on in the world around us and saying, okay, if you see somebody fitting this bill, and if you see that pretty regularly, then then we must be in the last days, and Jesus is right around the corner. He's going to be turning around, and when that didn't happen, when I heard it at 19, I kind of became disillusioned. Because, by the way, people have been disobedient to parents for a while. Now, I don't know if you read that part, but um, anyway, uh, I digress. But um, can I just talk to you about how the Bible often will phrase the last days? So there are places like Matthew 24 and 25 or the book of Revelation uh, that do actually talk about the last days as this apocalyptic return of Christ where he makes all things new. But typically, as we read through the Gospels and the Epistles, which is uh, what this book is, last days actually means where we are right now. Well, let me show you. Uh, Acts chapter 2. So Jesus has died. He's gone up and sat at the right hand of the throne of the Father where he's praying for you and I right now to persevere in these crazy times. And God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. And that kind of initiates this church age of sorts. And that's where the apostles began to write and plant churches. And all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit gets poured out on the day of Pentecost, you have this moment where people are speaking different languages and folks are like, are these guys drunk? What's going on? Here's Peter's response in his sermon. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, if you fast forward, this is something that's also echoed in Hebrews chapter 1. And again, this was written some almost 2,000 years ago. The author says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these, these, 2,000 years ago, last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so here's simply what I'm saying is, is I think as Paul is talking to Timothy about the last days that are going to be difficult in ministry, he's talking about right then. And he's also talking about right now, because we believe those last days encompass the church age, which is in which we live, that in which we live right now. And why else would Paul write this as an exhortation or an encouragement to Timothy if it's something that he would never see? He's encouraging this young pastor to persevere. Now, the other thing is he warns him about is there are going to be people who live out these 18 or 19 characteristics. Many people are thinking that this very well could be the false teachers that he's talking about or those who have started following what these false teachers in the church have begun to teach. And really, Jesus warns the church of this before he even left his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, there will come a time where wolves will look like sheep. And you'll know them by their fruit, which is so interesting that he said you'll know them by their fruit, not necessarily by some of the nuance of their teaching. I think that's certainly a part of it. But, but he's saying you're going to know the false teachers by the fruit that comes out of them. And I think that's a picture of what we're seeing here. So here's the first point. How do we begin to identify or wrestle with these 18 or 19 characteristics we're going to see? We're going to kind of water ski over them. We're going to double click on a couple just so we can get a deeper dive into what these words mean. But, but, but the first thing I think we need to wrestle with is this reality that we see here is that our lives match our loves. Our lives will match our loves. 
in seminary, I had a professor ask this one question. I think it was like our first day of class. And he said, class, and I've said this to you before, so forgive me, but he said, class, why does sin have power over you? I mean, I'm sitting there going, oh, I've got the theological answer here. And so I'm starting like, I've got it, you know, it's total depravity of man and it's our flesh. And I'm, you know, I'm getting all these big theological terms. And those things aren't wrong per se. But he said, you know, sin has power over you because you love it. I was kind of offended at the moment. I was like, wait a minute. No, I don't love these things that create relational strife in my life or, or, or you know, the, the things that have led to various forms of addiction or coping that I have. I don't love that. What do you, you don't know me, right? That was my instinct. But, but the more I've thought about it over the years, I, I think he's right. In part, we do begin to look like, first of all, what we love. We do. People make fun of my wife and I all the time because over the course of 18 years of marriage, as we pray, we have our little idiosyncrasies that we both like say in our prayers. And people are like, oh, you two said the same thing. <laughs> We're funny. And my kids kind of roll their eyes when we begin to look more and more like each other these days. Or uh, I loved Michael Jordan. I love Michael Jordan. You know what I did when I played basketball because I loved Michael Jordan? I stuck my tongue out. I was like, eh, guess what that didn't do? It didn't make me any better at basketball. But I loved him, I studied him, I tried uh, to do what he did. And so, and so that was just, that's a little goofy picture of becoming what I love and looking more and more like it. And friends, whatever that thing is that is our ultimate love, we will begin to look more like it. Here's the second thing, is I think if we love something that is not an ultimate, I would call it an idol. So if it's control or if it's comfort right? When that thing we love, when it proves to not be able to bear the weight of all of our hopes, all of our dreams of our eternity, and it begins to crack, you know what we also do with the things we love? We protect it at all costs. And so when we see it failing, we're going to fight tooth and nail. We're going to get angry. We're going to get anxious to try to protect it. And that's a part of, I think, the fruit of, of, of loving something to the point where it destroys us because there's nothing that can bear the weight of our love other than God himself. Anthony, it's really weird that you started talking about love in this text. Well, here's why. I don't know if you picked up on it as I read through the list, but I think the term love is actually said one, two, three, four, maybe five times, four or five times. It's how it starts. It says people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, and it's also how it ends. It says they won't be loving good. And at the very end, it said uh, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, this is kind of a, a tool used by authors where there will be a big, long list, but they'll usually put the point of what they're unpacking either at the beginning and the end, and they'll expound on uh, that which they really are trying to pull the thread on. At the end, I think that's part of what he's doing. There'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think that's an outflow of that first love in lovers of self. I think, in part, what Paul is actually saying is, is, is as we rebel against God and sin and demonstrate these things that God hates, it's not just as simple as volitionally or our own strength of the will saying, I'm just going to stop doing this. Because it's an overflow of what we love that is not God and will not ultimately sacrifice that we have given our ultimate to. I want to drill down a little bit more on this lovers of self, because if even if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, what is it other than some form of self-centeredness or self-love where Adam and Eve said, God, I don't want you on the throne. I want me in the center. I'm going to love myself and eat what you've forbidden of me. 
Diane Langberg, she's a Christian psychologist. Me and the staff and, and the elders are reading through this book right now called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the, Ch- Abuse in the Church. Uh, but she makes this statement about self that I thought was interesting this week. She says, any human not transformed by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ lives out of self as center. With our self as center, arrogance, entitlement, and deceptive ways with words have led to polarization and dehumanization, dehumanization and have sorted precious humans by earthly categories of politics, economics, race, and education. So let's drill down and see what some of the un, uh, outworking of self-love really becomes. Now, I'm not saying don't, and I'm not talking about self-care, things like that, but I am talking about lovers of self to the point where we kick God out of the picture and say, I'm the center of my universe, and if anything gets in the way, they're just a casualty, all right? There's a difference. We need to rest. We need to care for ourselves, all right? I want to be careful that you hear the nuance there. But here's some of the list, and, and some of these are self-explanatory. Some of these I'm going to drill down on a little bit more, but uh, he goes down, he says, there'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, and abusive. All right, let me, let me double-click on that word here for just a second. Abusive, uh, we typically think in terms of, you know, bruises, breaks, cuts, right? Uh, that form of abuse. But, but actually, the term that he uses here feels a little bit different. The term is blasphemous, which really is speech that maligns people. That's what that means. It's similar to blasphemy. And so it's really words that, that are being used, at least in this picture, uh, that is pictured as abusive. Now, I'm going to go back and borrow some terms from Diane Langberg for a minute to help us understand what this means. But, but when we're talking about abuse like this, we're really talking about how we use the power that we have. Here's one thing that she says about power and its definition is, power is having the capacity to do something, to act or to produce an effect, to influence people or events, or to have authority. And what she would argue is that every single one of us has some form of power. One of the illustrations she uses is, hey, guess what? A newborn baby has a lot of power. Do you know why? Have you ever had one wake you up at two in the morning? They have a lot of power over you in that moment, right? You know, sometimes your ears get hot and you're kind of ticked off and you're like, why don't you sleep, right? And in that moment, you actually have power too because you can either meet the needs of the vulnerable or not. Now, she goes through and she unpacks places in Genesis 1 and other places of Scripture to say, hey, uh, this, this is what it looks like to be an image bearer of God. But she gives, I think, some helpful definitions of, of what abuse could look like that falls into this category of our words that we use to harm others. Now, this is going to be online, so you don't have to feverishly write if you're thinking about doing so. But she says, one, to be human is to have a voice. An abuse of power silences that self and the words, feelings, thoughts, and choices of the victim. Here's another picture. To be human is to be in relationship. Abusive power violates and shatters relationship. It brings betrayal, fear, humiliation, loss of dignity and shame. It isolates and endangers. It creates barriers and destroys bonds. Here's the third. To be human is to have power and to shape the world. And abuse basically quashes and removes power. Anthony, why are you digging down so much on this picture of abuse? Well, I think abusive behavior is something that is just epidemic in the church right now and in our culture. It's happening in our relationships with one another. Friends, I don't care if you're progressive or conservative. If you're canceling each other and just slapping a label on them and not listening to anything they have to say and dismissing them, it's oppressive, it's abusive, it's wrong. It's happening in our marriages. 
Just because there's not a bruise, it doesn't mean that we are destroying another, not destroying another human being. We need to sit in this for a second. We probably need to repent of this. It's in the air we breathe. It's on the news we watch. It's on our Twitter feeds. And to think it's not infecting us as a church, we're fools. And God make us aware where we, myself included, are participatory in that. Here's a few more words to look at. Ungrateful. That means devoid of even elementary appreciation. Unholy. You know, holy means devout towards God. So unholy would mean we're devout towards everything but God. Inhuman. That means to utterly lack normal human affection. How about this one? Right Here's a word for our day. Unappeasable. Not even willing to come to the table to talk. Slanderers. That means devils or backbiters saying negative things of others behind their backs. Reckless, thoughtless, in word of deed. You could put in parentheses social media, maybe, behind that. The second part of this is it says, we profess a form of godliness, but reject its power. That's one of the symptoms of what is plaguing or what might plague a future church and what is probably plaguing the church here today. And, and uh, you know, this uh, what summer, lawnmower broke, 30-year-old Honda, wonderful, those Hondas. So I decided to buy another Honda, uh, figuring it would last another 30 years and put it together. It's all shiny. I think it said it can cut through like a redwood forest. It's like that good, right? Didn't say that. Uh, but I put it all together, and I grab the I grab the thing, and I just start pulling. I was like, I can't wait. Nothing. Nothing. Well, and then it just got ugly, right? I'm just like pulling and getting angry and throwing and yelling things. I probably look like half of these words that were uh, listed here. But in a way, that's the picture of what Paul is saying begins to happen when we just claim the name of Christ and we forget the power of the gospel to rely on it, to think we can muster it in and of ourselves, to change our loves and to live this out. Forgetting that as Romans 1 says, Paul's thesis to the book of Romans, uh, he, he calls um, the gospel the power of God to those who believe, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. It's his righteousness. It's the ability to even live this out. Friends, have we kind of bought the lawnmower, but it just doesn't run? It's not even worth cutting a blade of grass? Is that the the Jesus, the impotent Jesus that we believe in? There's a man by the name of Thomas Chalmers that talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. And he basically says there's two ways that we usually try to displace what owns our heart. He said the first way we do it is often by convincing ourselves that the lesser love is not worth it. And he said that almost always fails. He said the second way is to set forth another more beautiful object of our affection, and that's the person of Jesus, friends. Here's how Winner ends his article. He says, Something has gone amiss. Pastors know it as well as anyone, better than most. The Jesus of the gospel, the Jesus who won their hearts and who long ago won mine, needs to be reclaimed. I don't think Jesus needs to be reclaimed. He's there. He hasn't gone anywhere. But I do think as a church, we need to fight to pursue and look to Jesus as being the most beautiful affection we could ever attach our hearts to. Jesus is actually the antithesis of these 18 or 19 words. Did you pick up on that? He's not arrogant. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. 
He wasn't disobedient to his parents. He said, in fact, he obeyed his father and went to the cross on our behalf. He was not abusive. In fact, the ones who have probably been most abused by the culture, a prostitute, a woman at the well, the sick and the lame, he approached, he healed, he touched them, which would make him unclean. Friends, Jesus Christ is the most beautiful thing in all of the world and universe that we could ever attach our affections to. And and as we do, that is the power that changes us. Let me uh, quote to you John Stott as he summarizes this. He says, only the gospel offers a radical solution to this problem of sin. For only the gospel promises a new birth, uh, one creation which involves being turned inside out from self to unself, a real reorientation of mind and conduct, and which makes us fundamentally God-centered instead of self-centered. Then, when God is first and self is last, we love the world God loves and seek to give and serve like Him. So here's the last couple of things we're going to look at briefly this morning. The first is, okay, what do we do then? What if we as the church run across people, false teachers who are bearing this fruit and seeing that show up in the lives of others in the church? Well, uh, this is the second point, and, and, and really it's understanding this picture of these are ministries that destroy. Follow back up with me in verse 5. At the end, he says, avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So here's what's going on here. First of all, you see what I would call a godly effort. Did you hear what he says? Pretty strong words. He said, avoid such people. And you're like, Anthony, a couple weeks ago, didn't, didn't you say that Paul said to Timothy, correct with gentleness, patiently endure evil? Now he's saying avoid such people? What's going on? Well, friends, I think what's being made clear here is there does come a time where certain fruit, if it's shown over and over and over again, it becomes poisonous to the body. And it actually has to be avoided or removed. We would call this church discipline in our context. And so I'm going to talk about church discipline for just a second. I know it's not something we talk about often. We don't like to talk about it, but, but here's what church discipline essentially is. You remember we had new members join, right? We had a whole crop of young folk up here a couple of weeks ago, and, and we basically had them take oaths. But one of the things I'm always intentional to say is they've been examined by the elders, and we've found them to have a credible profession of faith. What that means is they're, 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 they're um, kind of interviewed by the elders and they say, hey, we see evidence or fruit of Jesus Christ in uh, these people. And so uh, they belong in the body of Christ. And so they join a local church. What church discipline is, isn't the power of the church to, to send people to hell or to save people. That, that is not what we're talking about. The bitter end of church discipline is this picture of saying, hey, um, as elders and as a church, we can no longer find a credible witness in this person's life because they are running so hard and so fast away from God, and there is no longer fruit that indicates that they follow Jesus at all. And that is a bitter, lamentable end that prayerfully takes much time uh, if we ever get to that place. But here's why it's important. There's three things we believe denominationally and as a church of why this is critical. One it's for God's glory. Friends, if, if, if the outside world looks at the church and says the church doesn't care about things like people who say, I'm a Christian and I'm going to be abusive, well, then that's going to reflect on Christ in an evil way. The second thing is, is church discipline is a rescue mission. Friends, sin isn't something to be played around with. 
We believe that it's a picture of somebody just running headlong towards a cliff as hard and as fast as they can. And church discipline in the church is us throwing our bodies in front of them saying, stop, I'm going to warn you, I want to love you, I want to pull you back, and God willing, the Holy Spirit will lead you to repentance before you destroy yourself and your life and your family and so on and so forth. And third, we believe it's for the purity of the church. It's to protect other members of the church. And I say that because um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, is one of the passages we talk about surrounding church discipline. Paul says, hey, someone living in a certain type of sin in that context said, um, you need to remove them from your fellowship because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, how many of us did a sourdough starter for the pandemic? Any of us? A couple of us? Yeah, I know who you are, some of you. So what happened when you put the new flour and the new water in with a little bit of the sourdough starter? It worked its way throughout the whole loaf, if you will. And Paul's saying that's what sin does if it's let to fester and grow in the body of Christ. Probably another illustration is, is something like an infection on your foot. right? If you just let that thing grow and fester, what's going to have to happen? The doctor's going to have to amputate. He's not being mean when he does it. He's actually saving your life and protecting the rest of the body parts from the infection. And in essence, that's what church discipline actually is. He goes on to talk about why it's important. There's grievous dangers that he speaks about even at the end of this. He says, um, they break in and they capture weak women burdened by sins and led astray into various passions, always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Now, when you read that, weak women, I know some of y'all, you're like, ugh, like, you know, you feel like it's this misogynistic statement. That's not at all where Paul is going. In fact, it's actually translated little women. It's the, it was a term or an idiom back then used for, uh, there were women who would just idly sit in their houses all day and then they would be captured by the passions of their heart and they would sin against God and it would lead to guilt and shame. And then these traveling salesmen of jokes of false teachers would come over and say, hey, uh, you know, you're guilty and, and you're feeling a lot of sin. Here's how you fix yourself. You just, Keep yourself from all sorts of enjoyment. That's what he talks about in 1 Timothy 4. He said, don't, you can't marry anybody. You can't enjoy yourself. And so be blessed, be filled, have a great day. And these folks were falling prey to that. And so this is a protectionary stance that Paul is taking, saying you remove them because otherwise there's going to be damage that continually works throughout the church. Well, here's the last thing I want us to read, and we'll close and move to the Lord's table. But, you know, at this point, you know, really uplifting sermon, right? Hey, man, let's go home, full of hope. Here's how he ends. He says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding their faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as what, was, uh, as what happened to these two men. All right, so Paul's going back to Moses. He did this a couple of weeks ago in, in, in order to encourage Timothy as he's facing some stuff that's really hard. Janus and Jambres, you can't find them in Scripture, but you can find them in Jewish writings where these were the names ascribed to the folks in Exodus chapter 7 who were with Pharaoh when Moses went to him and he said, you know, the staff's going to become a snake, right? And then Pharaoh looks at these two guys and says, okay, make a snake. And they did, right? And, and basically this is a picture of people who stand opposed to God's Word and, and really... What Paul is doing with Timothy is he's comforting him, saying, just give it time. Just give it time. They won't get very far, and their foolishness will be plain to all. As Satan tries to attack the church, he's still a lion on a leash. As we think the church is falling apart, we remember that Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail 
against His church. It just won't. The church will be standing when Jesus comes back. This season will not end her. Praise the Lord. That's our hope. So four quick takeaways. First, cultivate a heart of love for Jesus. You hear nothing else. Hear that. Pursue Him. Look at pictures of Him in the Gospel that are so beautiful. Evaluate the warning lights of self-love in your own life. Here's a third. Don't just wait for the church to institute church discipline. In fact, the best church discipline is proactive, and it's called discipleship. It's us in the lives of one another, holding each other accountable and gently confronting gangrenous sin that could spread throughout. If you want to know how that looks, go to the verses just before this. Words like gentleness, bearing with sin patiently. And then finally, if we are gripped with anger, if we are gripped with anxiety of the direction the church is headed, pray and ask the Lord to show you the aspects of, aspects of himself in Scripture where he says in the end, I win. I win. The church doesn't fail. And the gospel hasn't gone away. Let me close this in prayer as we move to the table. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, would you, would you strengthen the hearts of those who are weary from fighting in the church and from this eight, list of 18 or 19 things that plague us and encourage us with this picture that, Lord, in the end, your work of redemption, restoration, and consummation will happen. And Father, for the hearts that have given into the lie that there's something else worth loving more than you, Holy Spirit, would you just show them the beauty and the loveliness of who you are, King Jesus. We love you. Be with us as we move to the table. In your name, amen.